Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. A top-line goal of this podcast is to engage in conversations with influential figures that work in sports, and we've been so fortunate to have such amazing guests. When we say working in sports, the two primary jobs in sports are player and coach. Coaches have such an enormous impact, especially at the college level, not only outcome of the game, but on the human beings that they're coaching. Like many other things in college athletics, coaching styles have changed, and most would argue for the better. Someone who's an outstanding example of a modern coach is our guest today, Kate Popovic-Goss. Kate is the head coach of the women's basketball team at Bradley University, a role she started in 2022. Kate began her collegiate coaching career as director of women's basketball operations at LaSalle University in the 2013-2014 season. She returned to Northwestern following that season for a two-year stint as a director of player development for Northwestern. Northwestern received an at-large selection for the 2015 NCAA tournament, its first appearance in the tournament since 1997. Kate earned her first on-court coaching position at Colgate in the 2016-2017 season before joining the Northwestern bench in 2017. As a Northwestern student-athlete, Kate earned academic All-Big Ten honors in each of her two seasons with the Wildcats after starting her career at Pittsburgh. She was chosen as Northwestern's female recipient of the 2013 Big Ten Outstanding Sportsmanship Award, and she was named a Big Ten Distinguished Scholar following 2012-2013 season. Kate is a native of Canfield, Ohio, and she earned both her bachelor's and master's degrees from Northwestern. As you hear in the interview, Kate is infectious. Not only her enthusiasm for the game of basketball, but her passion for the players, the people, and the work required. So we hope you all enjoy this conversation with Kate Popovic-Goss. Kate, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Absolutely. I'm really excited to be here. We're excited to have you. And it's always so great to have folks on the show that have ties to Northwestern and are so ingrained in that Northwestern community. We were talking before we got going about how, oh, what a great experience it is to be a student athlete and be a coach at Northwestern. Uh, we want to get into all the great work you do today from a coaching perspective. But if we rewind a little bit, can you tell us how you got to the coaching experience you are today with your time as a player and, and as a coach and, and how that vaulted you to where you, you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I have a strong passion for Northwestern, always have, always will. I spent, um, you know, a third of my life up to this point at Northwestern, uh, met my husband there. Um, so it's, it's very special to me. Um, but in terms of just coaching, uh, you know, I loved basketball. It was always, you know, just, I'm highly competitive. I'm one of three girls. Um, and you know, my dad was a vision one football player and he actually went to Columbia university. So the academic, the academic piece was always instilled for me from a young age. And so, um, you know, throughout my collegiate journey, um, he actually was the one who really thought I should coach. And at first I wanted to maybe get into broadcasting, um, I'm really good at talking. So I just thought that might be a great fit for me. Uh, and I got my first journalism class and hated it. Um, they had me chop down a 20 sentence word to seven. And I was like, this ain't for me. Um, so I kind of was pivoting and I actually was really injury plagued as an athlete. Um, unfortunately when I got to college, I just was always hurt. Um, and eventually had a pacemaker implanted. So like my career just kept getting hit point by point with injuries, health scares. Um, you know, I almost died when I was playing. Uh, so it, 
you know, was an experience for me, but as I was sitting on the sidelines and I got to see coaching was so much more than telling kids where to go and diagramming plays. It was really being a manager of a business, of a program of people. And I really felt strongly that that is where my strengths were. And my passion is with people and relationship building. And so as I got to see that, I realized that coaching was something that would really be a great fit for me. Um, and as I got to Northwestern and, you know, battled so many injuries and so many health scares, um, there was a lot of investment in me as a human being to pursue that from my coaches and from the administration there. And so, um, you know, I got to see a lot of things that maybe student athletes wouldn't get to see from a coaching's perspective because they knew I had such interest in it. So, um, it led me to LaSalle University, where I started as director of basketball operations. Uh, and then I got a player development role at Northwestern, did an assistant position at Colgate for a year, and then was an assistant at Northwestern before taking the head coach here. So um, here at Bradley. So it was uh, a journey, but that's kind of where it all started. And, and really, for me, it just started with the relationship building process and being able to manage people. You're right. We often think about coaching as those X's, X's and O's, and it's obviously a component of it, a huge component of it. <laughs> But if you look back in the history of, of great coaches, you know, think of John Wooden, people that really develop the human beings are those ones that end up standing out. So it's really insightful. But if you look back at your playing time, you started your playing career at Pittsburgh and then finished at Northwestern, the transferring much different back then, even though it wasn't that long ago. We talked about this a little earlier. What was the, the driver in transferring and the changing of schools? Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I was getting recruited, it was so different. And I was a kid that grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, which is an hour and 15 minutes from Pittsburgh. I didn't really want to leave home. So when I found Pitt, they recruited me. I committed very early. I didn't really look at a lot of other places. Um, and, you know, one of the things I don't think I paid strong enough attention to was style of play. And as I got through my playing career for two years at Pitt, I just realized, like, I'm just not the best suited for the way this team is going to play. Um, and, you know, I, I decided it would be best for me to transfer for my well-being. And, you know, the Big Ten at the time was really focused on post play. I'm, I'm almost six foot four. Uh, like I said, my dad was a football player and I play like a football player. So it was a perfect league for me. Um, and you know, I, the academic component of Northwestern, um, Pitt was a great school, but the opportunity to be able to go to a school like Northwestern, um, I knew was afforded to me because of my ability to play basketball as well. And so to be able to go to that institution and be coached by a coach who was known for developing bigs, um, was really unique. And, and I knew I'd get to practice for a year against uh, a future pro and a future Northwestern Hall of Famer in Amy Jeske. And then she was going to graduate. So I just felt like it was the right opportunity for me. And um, the emphasis on being a student and an athlete at such a high level um, was really appealing to me. And I was fortunate that it worked out. So when did that stick for you around coaching? Meaning, was there a time when you were in your playing career, whether it was at Pittsburgh or at Northwestern, where you thought, you know, coaching is for me. I, I could see myself doing this and I can see really contributing in this area. Or was it just sort of a gradual evolution of really feel like I could lend my time and talents to the coaching profession? Yeah, I think it was really around my sophomore year when I was at Pittsburgh. Again, I was injured again. So I had missed, um, you know, a huge portion of the conference season my freshman year because of a third degree ankle sprain. It was really gnarly, nasty. And then I was on the sidelines with a stress fracture at the same exact time. So missed a huge portion of the conference season. And as I was sitting on the sidelines and watching, um, there were a lot of things that I was looking at and a lot of things I was paying attention to. And it kind of was like, man, this, this really might be where I'm meant to be. And maybe, you know, I hope I get healthy. I hope I can play pro, but like, there has to be something else that makes me tick. And in that relationship piece that I saw through coaching, um, 
was really huge for me. And, and I just felt like that was really where my strengths were because even when I was on the sidelines, I remember I'd watch film with my teammates late at night. Like my one teammate was struggling on picking up concepts and I would watch film with her. Um, and you had to find ways to impact your team other than playing. And so that was kind of how it all evolved. And so when I got to Northwestern, I was pretty secure and that's what I wanted to do. Which is really cool. You talked about the great coaching that you had there, the ability to practice with other players. And then you went on yourself to coach post players. Do you think that knowing that early when you got to Northwestern, it gave you the ability to really hone in on that and curate it out, learn from those coaches to be able to apply in what you do do now in your coaching style? Yeah, I um, I definitely think that that helped me. And, and what was great, and I didn't realize at the time was when in transferring um I coached and played, or I played under two different coaches, which is not common as a player. So I played under multiple staffs, multiple assistants. Um, and I kind of, as I started for my own coaching identity, picked and cho chose things that I like, didn't like about different styles of how people coach. You know, one of the things about Agnes Baranata, who was my coach at the University of Pittsburgh, was she was tremendously engaging in the community. Um, I don't think that there's anyone who could fundraise or market better than Agnes and how she really cultivated a locker room. She wanted to be a family. She had five kids. Um, you know, she was a mom. She was an old school Jersey Catholic girl. And at the time, I didn't really understand it. But as I look back, I'm like, wow, she did so many empowering things for our team. And then, you know, with Joe, um, it was really interesting because Joe was Joe was very laid back in a lot of ways. And I never really understood it until I realized he likes to let people have freedom to make mistakes. Um, he doesn't always want to micromanage because he doesn't feel like if I tell you everything you're ever going to really learn. So um, even as it, when I was a young coach, I was 26 years old and he looked at me he's like, you're going to be my recruiting coordinator at Northwestern. You know, I'm a big 10 assistant. I was the youngest big 10 assistant in the league. And I was like, okay, I can do recruiting coordinating. And he's like, and you're going to be my defensive coordinator. I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, you're ready for it. And I always joke that there's two ways you can teach someone how to swim. You can either put on floaties and teach them the strokes, or you can throw them in the water and they're going to figure it out. And that was Joe's mentality when he saw your talent and your capability. And he liked to let you navigate that way, which is so counterintuitive to how I operate. I like to, I'm very type A. I like to A to B to C to D. Um, so it was, it was fun. And I, I worked under and played with, like played for tremendous assistant coaches too. So it was, it was really cool for me to have that experience. That is how I learned to swim. I was tossed in a lake. Funny enough, I was just fine. You're right. It's about stepping back and knowing, okay, I'm okay here and I can do this. But it is a really empowering thing because as you step back and think about it, you had those skills, you had that knowledge. Someone just needed to give you the opportunity to do it and you went and implemented that. If we sort of spin that forward to your coaching now, how are things different? How are things different from one, being an assistant and doing all the, the operations components that you did previously to evolving into a head coach and the differences even too from the leagues and, and the different universities? Yeah, well, I think it was really funny because I, I always, I'm very ambitious and I'm very vocal about my goals. And so I want to be head coach. I want to be head coach. I want to be head coach. And Joe would always look at me and be like, you sure you want to be a head coach? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, I want to manage my program. And, you know, there's nothing you can do except be in the chair, right? When you make that move, that's all you can do. But I think what Joe and the administration at Northwestern did for me is they tried to prepare me as much as I could still being an assistant. Um, you know, Joe, every single year would add to my plate, add to my plate, because this is a guy who's been doing this 
for 40 years. So, you know, for him, the ego attached to I've got to win this or I've got to do this. It really was for him about people and the relationships. And that's, again, I learned from him, you know, the reason his why was the kids was his family was seeing the players gain success and obviously winning. No coach is not competitive and doesn't want to win, but he built the relationships to win. It was, it was inverse, but, um, they added so much to my plate so that I could be as prepared as I could have been. But the thing about it is, is until you are the one sitting there making those choices, you don't know. And I think the thing that I had to become very comfortable with is you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Um, and you are going, you're going from maybe managing a position group or managing, you know, your responsibilities to not only managing players, but managing a staff and then learning how to work within a brand new department. And, you know, when you're a head coach, the reason it's, it's a business, you know, I am not an MBA coach where I am 90% relied on for the relationships with the players and my analytics and ability to actually coaching in a live basketball game, the collegiate level, especially at the mid-majors, fundraising, marketing, um, managing the operations of your team, managing the health of your team, managing your staff, recruiting, scheduling, that's all within our walls. And whether it's me directly doing it or someone I manage, it comes back to me. And, um, you know, that's, that's a huge transition. And, uh, especially in year one, I mean, I have a folio of mistakes that I made, but the only thing that you can do is learn, um, from them. And, you know, the great thing that you can ask for in any position and something that I was really looking for is an administration who understands where you're at in your journey and who's going to support you along the way and not point at you and say, you did this badly, but okay, well, we know you didn't do well here. How are you going to fix it? How can we help you fix it? You know, what do we need to do to better support you? And I think that that's what I have here at Bradley and what I had so long at Northwestern. It's such a good way to model for those student athletes as well, because you want to give them the freedom and the flexibility to make those mistakes and, and learn from them. But if they don't see that happening, it, it becomes much harder to do. And so being able to do that yourself and make those mistakes and continue to learn is great modeling for, for those student athletes. Talked a little bit about this already, but if you expand on a little bit, what was the biggest thing that you had to overcome or the hardest part or thing you didn't expect from going to where you were to being a head coach and, and managing all of those components? I think just trusting myself. Um, a lot of the mistakes that I made was because I was questioning what I was doing, you know, and you're going to make mistakes whether, you know, you're right or you're wrong, especially I always say basketball is a game of mistakes, right? Your best shooters shoot 40%. So it's, you know, I was really the mistakes that I made though, that I wasn't trusting myself. <laughs> those are the mistakes that I really look back on. I'm like, you can't ever do that again. Like you are built for this. You deserve to be here. You earn this opportunity. Don't you dare question why you're here or why you were given this opportunity. You earned it. People supported you along the way to get to where you are and you owe it to yourself and you owe it to those who believed in you to take it like that. Because if you're going to make mistakes, you might as well make mistakes on your own conviction. Because when I lay my head down at night, I can at least go, you know what? That was the way I wanted to do things. And you know what? It didn't work out, but at least it was true to my compass. And I think that whenever I have stayed true to who I am throughout my career, that's where it has led me. It's led me to this point. And, you know, I think at Northwestern, it was a little bit easier because number one, you're an assistant. But number two, that was my home, you know, and the people that were still there had seen me grow up. And so... I had become so accustomed to how things were done there. And I knew that place like the back of my hand. So now it's, you know, it's different. You're learning, you're adjusting. But for me, 
it's just don't ever question your own confidence. Why would you do that? You know, cause you're going to fail regardless. Why would you question what you're doing? And, um, I think that was a huge thing for me to learn as a manager in year one. And I can imagine too, that in a place where you are leading a team, but also inside an institution and have some level of public view to that, there's a lot of people that will second guess you. There's a lot of people that say, well, why would you do this this way? Why would you do that that way? So it's such an important thing to have that conviction and stick to it because there's always going to be people to second guess you in any facet of life, especially in coaching. If we spin that forward and, and talk about the state of college athletics and, and women's college athletics in general, I don't think I'm unique in saying this, but I enjoyed the women's tournament more this year than I did the men's tournament. I watched more of it than I did the men's tournament because the storylines were great. The play was great. And I, I would like to get your opinion on this, but from my view, women's basketball at a university level is in such a great place now and only continuing to evolve and get better. But as someone that's on the inside of that, how do you view that? And do you think that that trajectory is still moving upward? I do. And, and I think a lot of it is just because, because people invested in the product. Um, you know, you can't put a product on the shelves if there's no investment in it. You know, it is marketing. We do need to be advertising on television. And all of a sudden what people are doing is going, wow, this is actually really cool and interesting. And I think what ends up happening is everyone always wants to compare us to the men and we aren't the men. And we don't want to be the men. We're our own sport. And I think for the first time this year, there was really that feel of like women's basketball is women's basketball and men's basketball is men's basketball. And we're brother and sister. We're not twins. And that was kind of, for me, I think it's what we've been advocating for for so long is just respect us for our game. I don't, I want the men to be successful. I want us to be successful. You know, I have a really great relationship with Brian Wardle, who's our men's coach, and they're the biggest advocates for us because they know we do and work just as hard as they do. And our girls put in just the same amount of time as their guys. So that respectability factor is there. And it was just really exciting for us to see that, you know, the pushes that we made through the pandemic, when you saw the discrepancies in the tournament to, you know, a few years later, it's, it's great. And I think it's imploding at the right time because we also have such marketable and unique athletes and their stories are being told, you know, Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese. I mean, it was unbelievable. And, you know, it really combines sports in a way that, with social concepts and constructs and politics and race relations. I mean, sports has always been a platform for life. It's always been eons ahead of where anyone is at, you know, socially or politically. And I just, the women's game has always been at the forefront of it. So it was just really cool to see that exposure. And um, I was really proud of it. I was really happy. And it was really cool because my phone was blowing up with so many people being like, wow, this is amazing. And I'm like, yeah, like we had to play against Caitlin Clark. She's pretty freaking good. I'd play against Angel Reese too. Um, yeah, they're awesome. And that's just really, it was so exciting for us. It's really exciting as a fan too. You make such a good point that it's a different game. And you often see that comparison with pro basketball, whether it's WNBA or the NBA and college basketball. In my view, it's a really good way to put it, brother and sister or cousins in some ways versus twins because... If you look at it from a men's perspective, the pro game and the college game are, are vastly different. They're different products, not one necessarily better than the other in some regards, if you like one style of basketball versus the other. But it's a really good way you know, to describe that overall. I think what goes along with this, too, is that the women's game in such a great place, women's sports continue to evolve. But the landscape in college sports is shifting significantly. Things like name, image and likeness and the ability to do that where 
female athletes have done an amazing job of capitalizing on that in many regards better than, than male athletes, but also things like conference realignment, shifts and changes with that. How are those things impacting you on a day-to-day basis, or is it something that you are aware of, but continue to drive forward on your, your other goals? Um, yeah, I mean, it's the wild, wild west. That's the best way to describe the state of collegiate athletics right now. And I think that um, my mindset has had to change um, in a way with the idea that I am at the mid-major level right now. So mid-major basketball and power five basketball are different entities. But in the same token, I think a lot of these sh- changes are affecting us at the mid-major level in a really different way. I have to shift how I want to recruit, whether I like it or not. Um, because with the portal, with NIL, you know, if I recruit a player that ends up playing well for me for one or two years, there's a chance that I will not have her anymore. Um, we have almost become the junior college of the power fives. And it's, it is what it is. You know, I could sit here and complain about it all day, but until they start regulating NIL, which I haven't heard that that's going to happen, um, or it starts to level out in some capacity, which I believe it will, because that's kind of the evolution. It, it explodes and it's up and it's down. And then it kind of levels out with any rule changes or changes in landscapes. But, um, you know, it is what it is, but also like, we do have to think about NIL at this level. Um, now what I don't think about is how do I compete with the P fives with NIL? I can't do that, but okay. How do I compete across the Missouri Valley in, you know, the a 10 and the summit league, which are leagues that I recruit against every single day, um, and become competitive in that market. Because if we don't, we're going to get lost. And, you know, the way RAD phrased it is he's like, you can like it or not. And what we really want to do at Bradley is still hold on to the sanctity of the student athlete experience. But the truth of the matter is, is you adapt or you die and we have to adapt in a way that makes sense for us. And so I think that those are the things that, you know, we have a lot of conversations about and, and NIL is still, you know, whether you like it or not, it's there. And, and I've always been a proponent of NIL, you know, when I was an athlete, I thought it was ridiculous that, you know, it's the only I'm one of the only people in the country that can't use my own name and profit off of it. Um, so I think that NIL is an important, important piece of the puzzle and and our kids should have it. You know, we had student athletes at Northwestern that were trying to patent products that couldn't do it or trying to start their own businesses because of name, image, and likeness. And, um, you know, but I think what it has become is something that, you know, no one could prepare for. Um, And we'll see what shakes out. But, you know, you just have to you have to figure it out or find something else. And right now, you know, I want to coach college basketball. So it's time to figure it out. You're right, though. You do have to adapt. And I think it's short-sighted to see folks pushing against those things, just lingering on name, image, and likeness. There's positives and negatives to it, ups and downs, but it's here in some way, shape, or form, and it'll continue to evolve. And embracing that does so much more for student athletes in the sense that they know that they have that avenue and they can know that they can be educated in that sense. It'd be interesting to get your thoughts on this, too, is that looking at it from somebody who's an educator... To have the ability to do as a student athlete at a place like Bradley or a place like Northwestern where student athletes are really student athletes, to get the ability to study contracts or marketing, but doing it for yourself is a really great education. And if the remit of a university is to prepare students for life after sports or life after college, it seems like a great way to educate. Do you think that that is a valid check in the pro column for name, image, and likeness? Yeah. And I think it's a vital one. And I think that that is where people have fear surrounding it is because um, student athletes don't know how to manage it. 
they don't understand that like if I make money off name, image and likeness, I'm going to be taxed. Um, we require our kids to take a course on it. You know, like they have to through we have a program that they are required to do education on it. I think that's important. But I do think it's an asset to the younger you start thinking yourself, the younger you start thinking about yourself as an entrepreneur or as someone who has power to make choices in business or in your job, how is that toxic? Now, I think that some of the ways it's happening, some of the amounts of money being thrown around, the fact that there's no legitimacy, right? So you could tell someone you're going to give them X amount of money. There's no, you don't have to, you know, and there's also no one tracking it, right? So the legitimacy of what's actually happening, again, we'll see where that goes in five years. But I just think that student athletes should have the right to their own name. And if we can educate them on, like you said, the benefits of that, that isn't harmful. But I think, um, you know, to get to that kind of point, it takes time and, you know, we'll see what continues to shake out, um, in terms of the evolution of it, but absolutely like at age 18, aren't you supposed to be going to college to learn how to prepare yourself for the rest of your life? It's really awesome. And have a good time. I think I spent too much time having a good time versus uh, doing other things. You know, I away think it was from, the opposite way for for people at Northwestern. Sometimes we're like, go go do something, like go yeah. go to a movie, like go be normal for just a little bit. Like it's okay. You know, it's really interesting you bring that up because it, it, on a previous episode of the podcast this season, uh, we had a woman who played golf at Northwestern is now the, the the golf coach at Stanford, and she said the exact same thing. She said that her coach even spurred her go out, go to this football game, go to these things. I think it's a really interesting point that you bring up because as a professional coach, your job is to ensure the the safety and health and those things of the athlete, but to win games. Whereas at the college level, in some ways you're molding a human being, you're helping to set their course because they're such formidable years of their life. And so it, having fun is a big part of that process. Yeah, no, I, um, I agree. And I think, um, it's hard. It's hard being a student athlete as well. Like it's hard being anything. And I think at this level it is challenging, but you, the relationships you can build and throughout your career as a student athlete are ones that are going to, you know, you have the rest of your life. I had three of my former teammates in my wedding. Um, you know, and you're going to leave talking about the games that you won or the degree that you had, but I can promise you, I don't remember whether I got an A minus or a B plus. Um, you know, I can tell you that I will laugh with my teammates about the practice where my coach just went a like absolutely nuts. And we laugh about it now, but those are the things that last. And I do think that, um, you have to find balance and or blend. Um, one of my mentors said, it's not work-life balance, it's work-life blend. And what does that make of you? And if you don't make those meaningful memories by taking some time for yourself and for to have whatever it is that makes you tick outside of your student, your athlete, your job, whatever it is, um, you know, you're going to be hard pressed. And I still struggle with that struggle with it. Um, I can remember crying over a physics an honors physics <laughs> test when I was a senior and my dad was so mad at me and my mom was like, why are you yelling at her? He's like, cause she's too tightly wound and this is no way for her to live her life. And she's got to like find some balance here. Like if she gets a B on the honors physics test or shoot, even if she gets a C, like she's still going to get a college degree. Like we got to have some perspective. <laughs> and it's really good to have that perspective. I think that we often lose sight of that. And especially someone who has young children, it's good advice because you can lose perspective and, and lose sight of what's really important very quickly if you move away from the nil component but one thing you mentioned and have extremely unique experience around is transferring and you mentioned the transfer portal as just a lay fan i was reading recently that something like 20 percent of men's college basketball players are currently in the transfer portal i can't even imagine it's got to be 
extremely hard to one manage that component of it and understand not only your players, if they were going to leave or, or transfer, but potentials from a recruiting perspective. But can you talk a little bit about the difference from when you transferred schools to what it is now and the, the difficulties that you face with it being more open? Yeah. I mean, I think when I transferred, it was, it was a little taboo, you know, like we, I couldn't transfer in league. If I transferred within the big East, I would have had to sit out two years. Um, you know, you had to, you had to get a release and you had to ask essentially to be released to other schools. So like the university had an opportunity to say, Hey, like you can't go here or it's conflict of interest or whatever. Um, I didn't run into really any issues with mine. People were pretty typically respectful of what you were trying to do, but, um, you know, it was, it was interesting because it made you think. And I think what the best thing for me was, was I got to redshirt because, you know, I, if you're transferring, you're transferring for a reason, you know what I mean? And in that point in time, you had to think about what that reason was. And I was unhappy. I wasn't happy. It wasn't the right fit for me. It wasn't the right style of play. So when I went to Northwestern, you know, I was able to rebuild my confidence, get acclimated to the institution. And also the, the reason I got a master's is because I transferred. So I thought that that was, really important. And now that stuff is eliminated. Um, you know, the one year portal thing or the, where you don't have to sit out immediate eligibility. It is what it is. It had gotten to the point where when I was asked to vote on it or what my thoughts were, I said, you might as well just do it because the waiver process was so ridiculous that, and it was so unfair, you know, one person was getting a waiver in for the exact same reason another kid wasn't. And you're going, there's, there's no equality in this. There's no rhyme or reason. We have to go one way or the other. It's either everyone sits out or everyone is going to have the immediate eligibility. And that's where it went. But what I just think now, and it's going to sound old school is it doesn't force you to have to think about the decision, you know, and so many kids, it's the kids were coaching. It's so funny. I say this cause I'm 33. So it's not like I'm, you know, the seasoned human being, you know, 55 years old, 60 have been doing this for a long time. Like some of my mentors, but like, you know, they're so used to instant results, instant success, instant, this instant, that, you know, everything is at your fingertips. I think that the hardest thing with a lot of athletes and coaches, they don't know how to battle through adversity and that portal is your get out of jail free card. And you know, it is what it is. And you have to, again, utilize that. I'm not the biggest fan of it, but am I recruiting from it? Absolutely. It, it, you know, it is what it is, but, um, I just think that it doesn't force kids to really truly think about what they're doing or fight through adverse situations. Um, and it's unfortunate, but that's the reality. And I do still think you have a lot of kids that go in the portal for the right reasons. You know, kids that have been in an institution for two years that it's just not the right fit or they're not playing. And you know what? Anyone who wants to play should transfer and try and go play some more. But what glitters is not always gold. And the transfer portal has created this idea that there's always something better and there isn't always something better. <laughs> or similar analogy in, in a weird way is I'll sit down in the evening to watch something fire up Netflix or, or HBO Max. And then I end up just scrolling through all of the titles that you could watch because you have sort of that paradox of choice. It's always that fallback, the get out of jail free card. Like you said, I don't like this. I'm just going to go into transfer portal and see what happens. But does that change your coaching style in any way? Does it change your approach to recruiting? Does it change how you work things on a day-to-day -day basis? Because you know that there's that prospect of back when you were playing, a coach could really help you to push through that adversity and understand what for student athletes today, that instant gratification and well, I can just transfer. Yeah, I think it's affected my recruiting a lot. Um, first of all, again, understanding that if I have a kid who comes in here and performs, I may not have the luxury of having them forever. Um, 
that's just something I, I have to really be actively thinking about. Um, we all do in, it is what it is. Um, I do think the lack of the COVID year now, like that's finally going to be over helps you a little bit. Um, because you know, kids, they only have four years. You've got to figure out how to manage four years, but, um, yeah, I think that in, in terms of recruiting, um, I, I paid a lot of attention to when I got the job about, and I looked at really successful mid-major programs. Um, the ones that, you know, go to the NCAA tournament who are able to compete with high major, major teams, you know, the Creightons of the world, um, you know, Bowling Green on the women's side was a great example this year. And I looked at their rosters and to be honest with you, it's mostly four-year kids. Um, they have transfers, sure, but it's, it's maybe three or four kids that were the right kids, you know, kids that were hometown kids, kids that fit a need. And that's kind of how I decided I want to model my recruiting is that same way. I still want to try and recruit high school kids and supplement with the right transfers. Um, but there's also a little bit of an insurance kind of factor with transfers because once they're here, they can't transfer again with the one-time exception. So sometimes they're, you know, once you get a transfer, you have them. So, um, but I think for me, that piece, and I really try and be mindful of the families I'm recruiting from and how kids were raised, how they play style of play and, and honestly recruit from people you trust, um, and that you have rapport with, you know, AAU coaches, people that are involved in the process, because what you're trying to do is get kids who are bought into you and the institution. So hopefully they'll stick. And that's what I try and recruit to. I say, I'm recruiting you as a student. I'm recruiting you as an athlete and I'm recruiting you as a person. And if those three things fit what you're looking for here at Bradley, then this is the place you should be. And hopefully, you know, we have a successful rate with that, but I think we anticipate every year we're going to have two kids leave. It, it often gets framed as everybody's trying to transfer, but it's a really interesting view into how you use that and how you recruit and how it can be used as a tool. Do you think that it is diminishing the experience that students have in any way, or do you think that it enhances it because they have the ability to, like you said, when we were talking previously about your, when you transferred, it was because of fit, right? Style of play and those things. You could see in, in years past where student athletes would say, well, you know what, this isn't necessarily the right style of play for me, but I can adapt to it and it can widen my skill set. But now they have the ability to say, well, I can go someplace else that fits that style of play. So there's on the one hand, you can say, well, it can help you grow that skill set. But on the other side, it's I could play right away because another school may fit exactly how I play. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I think it really depends on the kid. You know, I think it depends on the circumstance. It depends on the kid. But again, what I do think it allows people to do is, like you said, not try and adapt. You know, there is no because there's no quote unquote consequence. It's just very easy to say, well, this doesn't fit. Well, it does it not fit or are you just struggling right now? And maybe if you continue to put in time to evolve or do what you need to do, it'll work out. You know, nothing happens overnight. And again, I think that that has been what is created is there's just this safety. I mean, I have literally recruited um, or heard about P5 recruits that go, well, yeah, if it doesn't work out here, I'm just going to go to my second choice. Like it's already in their brain. Yeah. That I'm going to leave. And, you know, it's just, it, I, when I was playing, that wasn't that mentality. Like I really struggled when I transferred, I was a hot mess, you know, cause I felt like I was betraying people and leaving and, and, you know, I transferred. So it's, it's hypocritical of me to say, Oh, you shouldn't transfer. Of course there's a reason it exists, but I just think it's, um, I think you bring up a great point. And the fact, again, 
does it lend you to widen your skill set, broaden your horizons? And and that was able to happen to me because I transferred. Um, and I do think there's a lot of student athletes that have made that choice. I think the ones on my roster, not to sound kind of, you know, oh, I've gotten it right because Lord knows <laughs> you never know at our level. But, you know, some of the young people that I have that transferred, um, they are just they're tremendous because they've also they've been through hard experiences and now they're really appreciative because they do feel like they're in the right place. And and I love that about some of my girls that have transferred in. Yeah. And, and that's cool. I mean, I think it gives that view into who really wants to be there and is there for the right reasons. And again, gives the student athletes a chance to curate out what is best for them and, and make smart decisions. So we, we've talked a lot about. NIL and the transfer portal. Another thing that's such an impactful thing right now in college sports is conference realignment. I mentioned previously that I went to two Big Ten schools, Purdue and Northwestern. And it's still so crazy to me to think that USC and UCLA be part of the Big Ten. We see those stories and oftentimes it's aligned with revenue driving sports, which women's basketball is certainly one of those. But how does conference realignment impact you? And and how do you think it will change sort of the landscape of college sports in general and then in women's basketball? Yeah, I think, um, you know, what's interesting is, so I played, when I played at Pitt, I was in the Big East and the Big East was a basketball conference, right? It was Pitt, it was Notre Dame, it was UConn, Rutgers. Like at the time in women's basketball, you looked at your schedule and you go, how am I going to win a game? Right. And I just remember I was so devastated when the Big East changed. And, it, you know, I think the thing about it is, is what you have to realize it is football driven um, and it is revenue driven. And as obviously TV has expanded, you know, conferences are thinking like the Big Ten out in Maryland and Rutgers because they're trying to expand their their audience. Um, it makes sense, you know, and as devastating as it can be, it, it is what it is. One of those things. And I think what really from a coaching perspective, I think what it does is it. it um, style of play, right? It's it's very different. Like the Pac-12 was really different than the Big Ten in style of play. Um, and I think recruiting, you know, and I think one of the fortunate things that Northwestern um, had to its advantage is the conferences when I was there and they were being realigned is that we recruited nationally anyway because of the academic reputation. So it was challenging, but um, it wasn't limited to a region. You know, we had a ton of kids from the East Coast. Um, you know, we were diving everywhere all over the country, really the world. So I think that... Um, piece of it when you're thinking about it, you do have to change your recruiting mindset a little bit. But I think, you know, at Northwestern, when I was thinking of it as conferences really lining, I was going, well, we already have that kind of presence anyway, um, which allows us to be adaptable. But I think you see it even within the A-10, like Loyola Chicago just joined the A-10. All of a sudden they're expanding beyond being a Midwest, um, a Midwest recruiting. They were in the Missouri Valley, which is predominantly a Midwest league. You don't see a ton of people from, you know, New York and Alabama in our league, maybe one or two. Um, but, you know, I think you think about recruiting, you have to expand your ties and you have to think about the type of student athlete you're getting and the style of play of the league to kind of evolve. I think it's going to be really interesting to see um, how you recruit to such a vast national schedule. Like, you know, with football, you're playing one game a week you know, it's a, you know, how many games a season, 13 games a season. It's not, it's not that daunting in a sense of the number of games you're competing in. Basketball is a 30 game schedule. You play, you know, we play 20 league games in the Missouri Valley. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, you're going to be flying to from UCLA to Rutgers on a Tuesday night. 
what does that look like? And I don't think people really know yet. Um, and so obviously there's a method to the madness and it's a very profitable, um, thing for universities, which is great for everyone. It's great for athletics. It's great for the institution. Um, I'm sure academically it's going to allow people to have more recognition with dirt, with certain, um, you know, help enrollment numbers across the the country. You don't know, but I, I think that those are the things that with certain athletics and certain sports, I mean, baseball, softball, how many game schedules are they playing? How is that travel going to work? How are those logistics going to go? And that's just something I think figure out as it evolves. So I think that that's where you think in a coaching mindset of what that looks like. And even for us, luckily the Missouri Valley has stayed relatively central um, and where we're located, it's pretty easy logistically, but you know, the addition of Murray state and Belmont um, it's completely different region of the country. So it is interesting um, to see. So stay tuned, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And I think from a fan perspective, we see it as, Oh, it's, it's great in the sense that we're going to have different matchups and we'll have, it'll be really interesting for me as again, someone who went to two big 10 schools to see Purdue play USC in football, but we don't get the same view as someone like yourself of all the recruiting considerations and all the things that go into building not only team, but athletic department that will be impacted with that. I think there's so many directions we could go, but I'll get you out of here on this as we've talked about the evolution of, of college athletics and, and the great spot that women's sports is in right now and women's basketball in particular. But what excites you most about being a head coach in women's basketball currently? Uh, I, I just think the power to influence. Um, to know that there's a respect for the young people I'm putting on the court and, and the fact that there's people invested in them. Um, I think one of the coolest things about my recruiting right now is that, um, I am recruiting young student athletes whose moms play collegiate basketball and that's the generation that we're starting to get into. And that is so cool to be on the phone with another woman whose daughter is playing at a really high level and she played at a high level. Um, I think that that's the thing that excites me most is, is just having the power to influence and empowering people, you know, young women to be able to influence in a way that's important to them. And, and I still believe in the power of sports is a life platform. Um, all the lessons you learn, through athletics is, is a huge component of my why. And I think that that is something that, you know, because we're growing and because we're becoming more nationally recognized and respected, that's only going to trickle into more televisions and trickle into more young women's lives. You know, there's a group of girls that watch Caitlin Clark the same way I watched Diana Taurasi and Lauren Jackson and these prolific women. Um, and now with the continuing change in landscape of more media access, more interpersonal access to these athletes, you get to see who they are outside of the sport. And so um, for me, just to be able to be someone who empowers them and also, you know, gives people the opportunity to showcase who they are through the world of athletics is pretty cool. And that excites me a lot. And um, I'm excited to, to continue to build here at Bradley. It is exciting. It's exciting for us as fans and, and really exciting to see what you've done and how you've evolved. And we'll certainly be watching as you continue in the season and, and as you go beyond. Kate, thank you so much for the time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk about these things and to hear about what you're doing. And we wish you the best of luck going forward. Thank you guys so much. Um, you know, super, just like I said, I, I just so um, love looking back on my time at Northwestern and it's really fun to think about all the things that I've learned through my career um, and especially grateful for my time uh, in the MSA program. It was an awesome experience for me and it really challenged me to think of things outside of the coaching box and think more on the business side of things. That's something I'm really appreciative of. And um, But just excited to see, you know, continue to listen to you guys because what you're doing is pretty awesome and it's, it's great that people that you've covered. So appreciate you guys taking interest in me and um, good luck the rest of the way. 
Thank you so much. 